0: M S W Media Beans daily beans. Daily beans, daily beans Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Tuesday, August 29th, 2023. Today, I was in the courtroom when Judge Chutkin set the D.C. trial date for March 4th, 2024. Mark Meadows took the stand at a hearing in Fulton County over his motion to move his trial to federal court. Pete Navarro took the stand in D.C. for his motion to dismiss count one of his criminal contempt indictment. A New York man has been sentenced to three months for threatening Marjorie Taylor Greene. And Ohio Republicans infused their ballot proposal with anti-abortion language. I'm your host, Alison Gill. Who boy, what a day. Uh, I was at Prettyman Federal Courthouse today. I was in Judge Chutkin's courtroom for the trial date hearing. I was in Judge Amit Mehta's courtroom for Pete Navarro's motion to dismiss his contempt charge, uh, at least count one of it. And I was not in Atlanta, but we had Meadows and Raffensburger take the stand in Meadows' bid to move his trial from state court to federal court. Uh, then I recorded Clean Up on L 45 with Pete Struck, where we go over the Atlanta case in detail. So definitely check out tomorrow's new episode of Clean Up on L 45. Uh, I got to speak at Glenn Kirshner's Justice Gathering this past Saturday, which I told you about. Got to meet all the justice warriors. That was amazing. Just an incredible, justicy couple of days. So thank you all so much for being here with me today to discuss it. Dana's out because she's traveling, but I have a lot to tell you about. So let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. All right. First up from the New York Times, a battle over whether to move the Georgia racketeering case against Donald J. Trump and his allies to federal court began in earnest on Monday when Mark Meadows, former White House chief of staff, testified in favor of such a move before a federal judge in Atlanta. This is a federal judge now. This is Judge Jones. Under questioning by his own lawyers and by prosecutors, Meadows stated emphatically that he believed that his actions, detailed in the indictment, fell squarely within the scope of his duties as chief of staff. But he also appeared unsure of himself at times, saying often that he couldn't recall details of events that he should have recalled. In late 2020 and early 2021, quote, My wife will tell you sometimes that I forget to take out the trash, he told Steve Jones. United States District Court judge, but he also said he forgot or didn't even know that Trump was contesting the outcome of the election in certain states. Whatever. At another point during the day long hearing, he asked whether he was properly complying with the judge's instructions saying, I'm in enough trouble as it is. The effort to shift the case to federal court is the first major legal fight since the indictment of Trump, Meadows, and 17 others, by Fonnie Willis, district attorney in Fulton County. The indictment charges Trump and his allies with interfering in the 2020 presidential election in Georgia. Mr. Meadows is one of several defendants who are trying to move their case. Any ruling on the issue could apply to all 19 defendants, but maybe not. I don't know. Meadows is kind of uniquely situated as a former chief of staff. Meadows testified that Trump directed him to set up the now-famous phone call on January 2nd, 2021, between Trump and Raffensperger. Um, Now, you know, this is a focus of this case. Uh, And during that call, Trump pressed Raffensperger and said he wanted to find 11,780 votes enough to reverse his defeat in Georgia. Mark Meadows said, I was asked to reach out. He said Trump wanted to make the call because he believed that fraud had occurred and wanted to resolve questions about the ballot signature verification process. Quote, we all want accurate elections, Meadows said. Raffensberger also testified at the hearing after being subpoenaed by Fonnie Willis, recounting how he had ignored earlier calls from Mr. Meadows. I didn't think it was appropriate, he said, and he initially tried to avoid the January 2nd call with Trump as well. Quote, outreach to this extent was extraordinary, he said. If the effort to move the case to federal court succeeds, it could benefit the Trump side by broadening the jury pool beyond Fulton County into outlying counties where the former president has somewhat more support But it's still, the whole district is still democratic. It could also slow down at least some of the proceedings. If the case remains in state court, three of the defendants are likely to face trial starting in October. Kenneth Cheesebro has already been granted an early trial, a right afforded under Georgia law, and Sidney Powell has sought the same, and uh, John Eastman is expected to do it too. Removing cases to federal court requires persuading a judge that the actions under scrutiny were carried out by federal officers as part of their official job. Earlier this year, Trump failed in his attempt to move a New York state criminal case against him to federal court. His argument in the case was seen as particularly tenuous. Meadows was cross-examined by Anna Cross, a veteran prosecutor who's worked for district attorneys in three Atlanta-area counties. She continually pressed Meadows on what kind of federal policy or interest he was advancing in carrying out what prosecutors have described in court documents as political acts in service of the Trump campaign and thus not grounds for removal to federal court, because campaigning is not part of your job as a federal officer. Again and again, Mr. Meadows said, essentially his job had been to simply help the president. When Trump had concerns about elections, he said, chief of staff's participation in looking into those concerns is warranted, because doing so may have eventually resulted in policy changes concerning election integrity. But states administer their own elections. Miss Cross noted to Mr. Meadows that he had visited Cobb County, where a ballot audit was taking place after a meeting with Bill Barr, the United States Attorney General, and during that meeting, Barr dismissed election fraud claims as unsupported by facts. Meadows replied that in his mind, there were still allegations worthy of investigation, so he took it upon himself. During his testimony, he discussed the trip he made to Cobb County during the audits of signatures. He was turned away after trying to get into a room where state investigators were verifying signatures. Meadows said that he had been in the area visiting his children, and he was just stopping by. I was just in the neighborhood. He went to the auditing location because he was anticipating Trump would eventually bring up the Cobb County Review. He said what he found was a very professional operation. The case continues to move forward in state court. On Monday, Judge Scott McAfee scheduled arraignments of Trump and the others for September 6th. It's possible that some or all of the arraignments will not be conducted in person, given the heightened security requirements involving a former president. For the next few weeks, at least, the case will be wrangled by two different judges working in courthouses a few blocks apart in downtown Atlanta. Judge McAfee, Fulton County Superior Court. He's an appointee of Georgia's Republican Governor Brian Kemp and a member of the conservative Federalist Society, though he also once worked for Ms. Willis and is well regarded by many lawyers on both sides in this case. And the other is Judge Jones, an Obama appointee. He's been moving quickly regarding the removal question. In 2019, he upheld Georgia's purge of nearly 100,000 names from its voter rolls over the objections of liberal activists. In 2020, he blocked a six-week abortion ban from taking effect in the state. The Georgia case is the fourth criminal indictment of Trump this year, (laughs) so far. And if Trump is elected president, he could theoretically try to pardon himself. But as we know, regardless of the Georgia case, whether it's Tried in state or federal court, he can't pardon himself from that, nor can any Republican president. Meanwhile, while that was going on, I was at man. I was in the courtroom this morning for Judge Chutkin's trial date hearing in the Jack Smith, D.C. indictment of Donald Trump on four charges. Title 18, U.S. Code 371, conspiracy to defraud the United States. 1512K, conspiracy to an obstruct an official proceeding. 1512C2, obstructing an official proceeding. And 241, conspiracy against rights, namely our right to vote and have our votes counted. The simplicity of that four count, one defendant indictment came into play in court today. First, if you follow me at all on Twitter or you heard my breakdown of the Department of Justice filing opposing Donald Trump's request for an April 2026 trial date here on The Beans, you know what I was expecting in this hearing And it went exactly as I thought it would. So after her opening remarks, she said that the parties are clearly nowhere close on this, right? Department of Justice wants January 2nd, 2024, and Trump wants April 2026. And she says we're very far apart on this. But she said neither recommended date is appropriate, meaning that the January 2nd is too soon and the 2026 is too, too far away. She addressed Trump's argument that the average 371 case takes 29.4 months because remember in the filing, he was like, look, the average from, you know, from commencement to termination, the average case for Title 18 U.S. Code 371 conspiracy to defraud the United States takes 29.4 months. And as I surmised, she talked about how misleading that number was. She talked about how it was derived from cases that took place in 2021 and 2022 after COVID did a number on the, the case backlog in those in the D.C. District Court. She talked about the fact that these cases that they cited, using you know to find that 29.4 number, those cases included extensive pretrial uh, detention uh, hearings and plea negotiations, and one case had 17 co-defendants. In fact, most of them had co-defendants, anywhere from five to 17. She also noted that 29.4 was the average time to get through, all the way through sentencing, not to the beginning of trial. And she stated plainly that the defense does not need two years to prepare for this. Two years, no, way out of bounds. She also addressed the volume of discovery, which is now up to 12.8 million pages, Molly Gaston, the AUSA, argued for the prosecution that 61% of discovery is stuff Donald has access to, public domain, national archive stuff, things that were in the January 6th committee uh, repository, all this stuff that you've known about, and some of it is even stuff he created himself. And the remaining, much of much of it is duplicative. For example, the trial evidence exhibits are attached to relevant testimony but they're also submitted separately as evidence. So all of those exhibits are duplicative. Now, Gaston said all of their discovery is annotated. Uh, There are actually only about 45,000 pages of key evidence, and it's all annotated as a roadmap, uh, you know, kind of an annotated indictment. They've numbered everything. They've put it in organized files, given timestamps on tapes. They've even labeled things they see as potentially exculpatory evidence which would fall under Brady material, that's stuff that would help Trump. They've labeled all that. They also discussed uh, during this hearing the classified material. And the judge agreed that the SEPA considerations for the roughly 300 pages of classified information, uh, which are not going to be used in the prosecution's case in chief, that SEPA stuff will not delay the schedule. That can be done in parallel, which is what the DOJ argued for. Also, just as I suspected, she did not issue a gag order or remand him to jail. I know a lot of people were thinking that that would happen. It was never going to be a chance. So she she didn't really address that. I mean, she did a little bit. She talked about how she reminded everyone that inflammatory statements can taint the jury pool and that that can cause this to go faster. But also, uh, as we predicted here, she she set the trial date for March, March 4th, 2024 which is actually when jury selection will begin. She stated that this is a four-count indictment of one man, and seven months is plenty of time for defense to prepare. So that comes in handy. Jack Smith was right to leave the co-conspirators off this, in the interest of time. Trump has said he will appeal the trial date, but uh, this just in, you can't appeal a trial date. And if March four sounds familiar, that's the proposed trial date for Fonnie Willis. Uh, But she'll move that now. And it's close to the March 24th trial date set for the Manhattan DA. But Judge Chutkin said she spoke to Judge Merchan and advised him of her decision. So this is the most important case. It will take precedence. There were several pretrial motions discussed by the defense. Like they're going to say that there's absolute immunity for Donald Trump, executive immunity. This, this was selectively prosecuted, meaning he's been he's being politically persecuted. Uh, they're going to argue First Amendment stuff. I go over all of that in a piece that I just wrote for host, post.news. You can find me there through my Twitter bio. There's a link to that in my Twitter bio. It is free to sign up for post. My content there is always free, so you can go check it out. Uh, It was pretty cathartic to be in that courtroom today to see kind of the fruits of what we've been fighting for come to fruition, to sort of take part in that. In, in injustice being done, it was very moving to be there. Jack Smith was there. We made eye contact at one point. He had a security detail of like six people. The only person in the courtroom that did. Yeah, he. We looked right at each other. He gave me the you know sup that little head tilt thing, <laughs> and I did it back to him. Hey, hey, buddy. So. It was, a, it was a, a really a fantastic day for justice. I hope you read my piece about it on post. All right, after I was done in courtroom nine, walked over to courtroom 10, where Pete Navarro was testifying. I go over that in detail on tomorrow's cleanup on aisle 45. There's a lot of interesting stuff. The judge there, that was Judge Amit Meta. by the way. He did not rule today on his motion to dismiss. He will rule on it uh, on Wednesday. And I'll bet the farm he's going to deny Navarro's motion just based on what I saw. You should listen to the discussion I have about it with Pete Strzok on cleanup. All right. In other news, away from the courtroom, Zoe Richards at NBC, a New York man who made threatening phone calls to Marjorie Taylor Greene's office last year, has been sentenced to three months in prison because you can't do that shit no matter what side you're on. Of course, I don't think Jim Jordan's weaponization committee is going to look into this. Now, Joseph Morelli of Endicott was sentenced Thursday after pleading guilty this year to transmitting interstate threatening communications stemming from voicemails. He left for the Georgia Republican in March of 2022. Chief Justice Judge Brenda Sands ordered Morelli, 51, to surrender on October 2nd and serve a three year term of supervised release after completing his three months in prison. A spokesperson for Green, an attorney for Morelli, did not respond for requests for comment. Morelli left seven threatening voicemails for Green at her Washington office on March 3rd and 4th in 2022. As part of his guilty plea in February, Morelli admitted to calling Green's office and threatening to cause her physical harm. Yeah, I just don't think I can go on letting you, you know, cause hatred and poison to people. I really think I'm going to have to cause you harm, physical harm. That's what he said, according to the criminal complaint. I'm going to have to take your life into my own hands, he said. Now, a subsequent voicemail includes threats to, quote, Show you to your face right up front what violence truly is. With a threat to pay someone to take a baseball bat and crack your skull, you are going to get fucking physically hurt, he said. The judge who sentenced him Thursday postponed a decision on Green's request for restitution in the amount of $67,000 for security improvements at her Georgia home, following the threats. So she's asking for $67,000 to upgrade her security at home. Federal prosecutors said Morelli should pay the requested restitution because Green had received occasional reports of threats, but that Morelli's case was the straw that broke the camel's back. And let's head over to Ohio. Remember how Republicans tried to trick Ohio voters by scheduling a special election in August against their own rules in hopes of low turnout to change the rules to amend the Constitution so Dems wouldn't be able to pass a measure to enshrine abortion rights in the state constitution? Remember that? Remember that? Fuckery, that trickery. And then remember how we won? By a lot. Well, now they're being dicks about the ballot language to try to trick voters again. On Thursday, from Talking Point's memo, the Ohio ballot board approved a summary of amended text, which will appear on the ballots that bears little resemblance to the full amendment. Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose, a Republican, a champion of the unsuccessful 60% threshold initiative, provided the swing vote to approve the summary, because of course he did. He also revealed that he had a hand in crafting the new summary, saying that they've worked extensively on drafting this. I do believe it's fair and accurate, which means it's not. Advocates of the amendment had pushed for having its full text appear on the ballot. Just put the amendment in the fucking, put it on the ballot. LaRose said no, responding that a full amendment would be available on posters at voting locations. Quote, they know they have to put their thumb and all their fingers and their elbows and knees on the other side of the scale to make it as biased as possible in order to have any chance of winning. That is Elliot Forehand, a Democratic member of the ballot board, talking to the Talking Points memo. Quote, it goes to the bigger picture of why we're all here because we have a democracy in a state of Ohio that's not reflective of the will of the voters. He added, pointing to the state's aggressive gerrymandering along with lack of campaign finance regulations and transparency measures. The new summary sprinkles the anti-abortion phrase unborn child throughout, instead of fetus. It erases all mention of giving people the right to make decisions about their miscarriages, fertility treatment, and contraception. Critics have called it confusing and misleading. In the original version, the crux of the amendment reads, the state shall not directly or indirectly burden, penalize, prohibit, interfere with, or discriminate against either an individual's voluntary exercise of this right or a person or entity that assists an individual in exercising this right, unless the state demonstrates that it is using the least restrictive means to advance this individual's health in accordance with widely accepted and evidence-based standards of care. The new version in that section becomes, quote, prohibit the citizens of the state of Ohio from directly or indirectly burdening, penalizing, or prohibiting abortion before an unborn child is determined to be viable unless the state demonstrates that it's using the least restrictive means. What? What? Keep your heads on a swivel, Ohio. They will stop at nothing to strip you of your rights. They are trying to trick you, and they will continue to do so in order to retain power. All right, that is the Hot Notes. We have some good news to get to, but we have to take a quick break. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back. After these messages, we'll be right back. Everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. Who likes good news? Good news. Good news. And if you have any good news, confessions, corrections, you want to play what the mutt, what the heck wine, frog orgies, baby pictures for Dana. I also like baby pictures. It's not just for Dana. And Dana probably likes frog orgies too. But I somehow it just ended up that way. <laughs> Here we are. Uh, Whoopie stories, blanky stories, anything you want to send us a shout out to a loved one or a small business in your area, please send it to us at DailyBeansPod.com and click on contact. First up from M. L. Kennedy. Hello, all. Just a minor correction. Vivek is pronounced like Vivek. It rhymes with mistake. <laughs> it's a good way to remember it, M.L. Kennedy. Shout out to my friend of 20 years, Meredith Halsey. She is currently co hosting the least salacious murder podcast around Murderland Chicago Deep Dish of Death. It focuses on the sociological issues around Chicagoland, which facilitate its prevalence for serial killers. Ooh, I like that. I love Chicago. I'm interested in serial killers. I love murder stuff. It's called Murderland Chicago Deep Dish of Death. Also, here's a new picture of the very large Yorkie from the What the Mutt a few weeks back. Oh, hi, baby. Thank you for sending me in that updated photo. All right, from Sabeth and Mario. Hello, uh, or hello, I should say. My husband and I love your show. Love listening for our morning routine. That routine has consisted of fostering kitties and our latest one is a beautiful black kitten named Lucinda. She was found on a plane, in a plane, and rescued by a good Samaritan, and brought to the rescue dirty little paws here in San Diego. She's come a long way from hiding in the corner of the bathroom to cuddling with both of us as we mellow out. She's very socialized now, and she's ready to be adopted to a home that wants a mellow cat that isn't too needy, but a close companion during the lazy moments. Much love to you both, and all the Beans listeners. Look at this sweet baby, and look at that math. What are you doing? String theory? What is this? It's calculus. Look at that. I'm looking at the math. And then there's the kitty helping with the math. Oh, look. Look at the tuxedo in the background. <laughs> oh, so cute. What a sweetie. And look at this adoptable baby kitty. Oh, so adorable. Thank you both for that. All right, next up from Anonymous. Hi, thanks for calling out the fact that hormone blockers are used for other conditions besides gender-affirming care. As a rare parent of a kiddo with a precocious puberty that impacted my one-year-old and a trans kid, our family has lived through the spectrum of care. Oh my goodness. One more reason to love the Daily Beans, the fact that you all help us see the many dimensions and facets of humans and the stories behind the binary headlines and news coverage. Love to you all. Here's a picture of our beloved fur baby resting on the couch. What a beautiful German shepherd baby. Hello. That very long, elegant snoot. I want to boop it. All right, next up from Shane, pronouns he and him. Hello from Canada, beans queens, Canadian flag emoji. Just like a good neighbor. Oh, you are. I thought I'd check in. We up north are closely following the trials and tribulations of the Cheeto who will not be named and really hope... That roaring social grease fire of a mess goes well for you. Thank you. Disappointingly, the MAGA mentality has also slithered north and is quickly starting its own grease fire on the Canadian right. We have our work cut out for us, too, it seems. In any event, thanks for all your excellent coverage. The beans are usually a step or two ahead of the larger outlets when it comes to the smaller details that matter to me. On that note, with some of the flying monkeys now taking the speedy trial route in Georgia, Is there any more news on De Oliveira's invocation of his speedy trial rights in Florida case last Tuesday? Uh, Here's a production note. Asha and Renato will be covering this on the next episode of It's Complicated, an MSW media podcast that's coming out this Friday. Shane goes on to say, me thinks the Trump train is beginning to derail. I agree with you, sir. Lastly, I would like to introduce Jack. This lazy two-bit, no-accountable kibble wrestler came to me as a seven-year-old rescue At a time when my marriage had just ended, bankruptcy and house foreclosure had just begun, and everything in my world went dark. Also, a picture from that time showing my then seven-year-old son playing with the new arrival. Then a picture with the same two knuckleheads 11 years later. Through many changes and so much difficulty, we came through the dark together. I am now debt-free, out of the closet, remarried to a fine Southern gentleman from Gastonia, North Carolina, which is why the small details matter to me. Thanks for all you're doing, for all three pods, and for the swearing. Especially the swearing. This cat looks like my cat, Booba, who I miss dearly. Look at this baby. He looks like a bit of a chonker. Aww. Cute kid, too. Thank you for this. Yeah, it's been a long road. <laughs> it's been a long road, my friend. I'm so glad that you're doing well. And this cat is awesome, and so is the kid. All right, Leah, pronouns she and her. After hearing the fabulous Psychic Chickens episode, I just had to share this painting I did for the year of the rooster in 2017. It's called Cockalorum, defined as an aggressively and offensively selfish and conceited person. Of course, it depicts the former guy, now known as P.O. 1135809. I offer prints at my Etsy shop, Curious art lab with profits going to the ACLU. Leah, that is so cool. Most of my art is more of a light-hearted escape from reality, but sometimes my political beliefs do bubble in over a painting. I also have a pink pussycat print that I did to celebrate the women's March titled "Nasty Nation," after the former guy's comments about nasty women. Profits from that one go to Planned Parenthood. I'm so grateful to you both for helping me stay fully informed in a way that also protects my sanity and makes me smile. And it's comforting to know how many others are out there listening who share the goal of justice for all with love and solidarity. This painting is fucking rad. And so is the Kitty Justice. Oh, these are great. And I love that you're, you're getting your, your creative on, right? But also, you know, you're, the, you're donating proceeds. That's so wonderful. Thank you so much, Leah. Truly incredible art. I absolutely love these so, so much. And the stuff in the background, so very cool. Cockalorum! Thank you all for your submissions. These were wonderful. Uh, it's been a great couple of days. I fly back to San Diego tomorrow, uh, which means that because of travel delays, I'll probably be solo again tomorrow. But Dana will be back, I promise, um, as soon as our traveling is done. And, and then I don't have a lot of travel for a while, so it'll be nice to, to bloom where I'm planted for a minute. Uh, until tomorrow, everybody. Please take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of the planet, take care of your mental health. Vote blue over Q and bring someone with you. I've been A.G. and them's the beans. The Daily Beans is written and executive produced by Allison Gill with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg. Sound design and editing is by Desiree McFarlane